Welcome to the Campaign Builder. I'm Dan. And I'm Adam. And we're showing you how to build a campaign from level 1 to level 20. We know that your campaign will be different from ours, but listen to how we use the idea of dynamic encounters to add unique scenarios to our sessions. We're designing encounters for a generic party of the following five archetypes. Warrior, priest, mage, criminal, and outdoorsman. And they're all busy leveling up to level 5 right now. But while we do that, let's contemplate a couple of useful, dynamic ways to use dice to promote teamwork. This entire series, as well as other series on role-playing games, are available on the It's a Mimic feed on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, and lots of other podcast apps. So don't forget to follow or subscribe on whatever app you're listening to. Also, feel free to support us by hitting that donate button on the website. That's enough shameless promotion for now. Let's get to building. All right, Adam, we have talked at length about skill challenges, but I feel like we've done a bit of a disservice. We are 25 episodes in and we haven't really done a deep dive on all of the really cool things you could do with skill challenges and how to encourage your players to build to a completion of a task through teamwork. Well, we did a bit of a deep dive. If people want to go back and listen to uh, our episodes on dynamic encounters, yep. that was both episodes, I want to say five and ten. Sure. Uh, but skill challenges are very different than the others. It's not one that's getting interrupted by something else. It is a series of different skills that are being used by different people around the table. Everyone has a turn to use their skills. And when they do, it adds to an overall rapid fire session of people trying to accomplish a lot of things at once. The best example of this for most people is a chase. Yep. Right. Where you are running along and someone has to roll in athletics to jump over something. Someone rolls in acrobatics to dodge something. Someone's rolling stealth to sneakily run around a corner and someone else is, is going to roll a deception to pull on a costume. And, yeah. and so, um, these are, um, all about the number of failures versus the number of successes. The more successes you have before you get a certain number of failures means you're going to have a different state of success. Exactly. And I mean, there there are multiple ways to kind of pursue it. I, I find the skill challenges, at least on my table, are something I really love to do when I'm really wanting to lean heavily on that exploration pillar. I love the aspects of skill challenges that reminds me of video games, funny enough, because to me, in my brain, when I'm going through a, a skill challenge and describing the effects that the players have, whether they succeed or fail, and I don't necessarily tell them what DC they're trying to hit, how many successes they're trying to hit either, I, I try to keep a lot of that in the mystery. And if they hit the failures first or they hit the successes first, that's when I'll kind of unveil everything. But the video gamer in me sees these as quick time movies. Yeah, that's very right. much a thing. The quick time event. Yeah, quick time event. Hit yeah. A really quickly in order to get onto the next thing. Yeah, right. And like I've played a lot of God of War and that's like the biggest example in my mind is God of War where like you are climbing this massive colossal titan and okay, well you have to put X, push X here or and then you got to push square here or triangle there. I clearly played on PlayStation. So like these are a good visual of how a, uh, a skill challenge actually happens at the table. Your one player does a thing and that makes the plot move forward enough so that the next player can then do another thing, which will move that plot forward or maybe back more. But you do that three times. If it's always a chase or it's always you being chased or it's always an exploration or something like that. How do we keep a skill challenge interesting? Okay, well, I always think of Crash Bandicoot because they actually did I that. I told you to get that checked out several yeah. times. <laughs> They, I, I 
remember playing the one where they're traveling through time specifically because they've got all these skill challenges as well, but it's not a pass-fail. Yep. It is you hit B and you're there's one specifically. You're being like a boulder Indiana Jones style is coming after you. And every time that you don't hit the right button in time or you hit the wrong button, every time you hit that fail state, the boulder gets closer. And there are a number of those, but you have to get far enough away mm-hmm. or succeed of a certain amount in order to get through. And that's what D&D is, right? Yeah. You're rolling dice to see if you succeed instead of hitting a button in time. But it, it's the same thing. How do you keep it interesting? Well, I'll tell you. First of all, you don't just keep it exploration. Most people do. Mm-hmm. But you can very much do this for combat. One of the ones that that I pointed out um, with the caravan episode was that everyone was getting attacked by, I think, a purple worm. And it was a skill challenge for people to, to help and aid and guide and whatnot in this area. To, because this purple worm is going to demolish level four characters. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> demolish level 14 characters. But I think that it is entirely acceptable to have a high-powered NPC say, here are the skills, here are the tools, here's the way that we defeat this high-level monster. You need to go do this. Whether it's during an exorcism and you've got to keep candles lit, or you've got to um, evacuate a city while there's a Tarrasque that, that's stepping on buildings and people. Uh, whatever it is, there are ways that you can add it to combat. You can also add it to role-playing as well. Yeah. If you're going to a masquerade party, any sort of like social ball encounter where like you have um, people in, engaging in different conversations or um, I find skill challenges are really useful for espionage and intrigue as well. One of one of the things that I see all the time are people complaining that, hey, I rolled really high on my persuasion check. How come I'm not getting my items for free? Well, because there's no way that he's going to give them to you for free, but... If you want to persuade, well, that person lies and that person intimidates and this person over here is trying to distract them with some sort of persuasion and someone else is stealing with a sleight of hand check and there's a lot going on in this in this shop all at the same time, that could be a skill challenge. Yeah. And we often think that one or two rolls is all it takes in order to get to the outcome. If you start to have more rolls that are more successful or, or more rolls that are more of a failure, you're going to get new, interesting, dynamic ways of looking at specifically complex and complicated scenarios that yeah. a single, well, you rolled really well in your performance check, you win. Well, if, if the minstrel juggled for, you know, four hours, is there acrobatics and a sleight of hand and a dexterity save when one of them yeah. goes a little off? And like, you can really layer this in to be multiple things to see how well they do. And your players will remember that far better. Oh yeah. And well, so that, that's what, that's what skill challenges are really for is making these kind of mundane things like roll stealth to get by is just another thing. You snuck by the guards in three weeks. No one will remember this. Mm-hmm. But if there are a series of patrols and there are guards and there's a spotlight and there, People will remember these are set pieces that you're creating and you're using skills to get through. Yeah, I, I find that skill challenges in and of themselves are criminally underused. I believe I've said that multiple times. Um, so I like to think of a instance of where I could use a skill challenge once every two sessions minimum. If I could fit another skill challenge in in the uh, in every single episode or every single session, then we are laughing. We're having a good time because the party is able to really build together as a team, which let's be completely honest. This is cooperative narrative storytelling. You need to be cooperative to do it. And nothing's going to build your players as a team closer than a skill challenge. 
So um, the one thing I, I did want to bring up is there are a couple different kinds of skill challenges as well. This is another way to keep them interesting and, and aware. Um, and, and we know that you could do it easy where everyone could roll whatever skill they want as long as they justify it. They can do well, it. Well, okay. Even with the easy one, though, you can't use the same one twice. No, of course not. Right. Well, uh, that doesn't necessarily go without saying, though. I see a lot of, of criminals that want to use the stealth over and over and over again. No. This is about expanding out and seeing what else you have. Wh- how can you use the things you're proficient at to the best of your ability? Yes. Sometimes you got to rely on things that you're not proficient at, and that can be a little scary, but the easy one is you just cannot use the same one that, that you've done before. And it's you as a player. Um, I am on board with if I, if I want it to be a little bit of an easier, just a quicker skill challenge, just to build, do something to build that sense of teamwork. I will let if the priest wants to roll stealth and then the outdoorsman wants to roll stealth and then the criminal wants to roll stealth. Yeah, man, all of you roll stealth. It's passive success, right? But if we get around the table and it's now the priest's turn again, he ain't rolling stealth again. He can't. And that's, right? the, that's the other interesting thing about skill challenges is you have to have enough of an opportunity for everybody to roll a few times. Yes. Which means that as a dungeon master, you are really sitting down ahead of time and saying, okay, I need uh, 11 successes before seven failures or something, right? Yep. And I do roll initiative for this. Oh, yeah, every time. So that people are going in the correct order and they know when their turn is coming up and they're sitting there looking at their character sheets sweating a little bit because because the warrior who has put all of this time and effort into their their attacks now realizes they've got to do a social yep. skill challenge. And if they fail three times, that's half of the failures on the table. See, I always let the players know <laughs> the number of successes and failures so that they all start to sweat when it starts to get really, really scary. Uh, I mean, depending on the situation, I guess. If if if, you, if I want to put that sense of dread in them, sure. But um, my my big thing is I love the lack of knowledge of where the finish line is because it means they'll try to finish as hard as they can. Right. That's true. I just think that see on the flip side, having everyone around the table know how many successes or failures means they're all tracking it together and it promotes more teamwork. Do do you? Tell them whether their successes or failures. Like, do you tell them what the DC is as well? Yes. I straight up, I I will tell them, you need nine successes before you get seven failures. The DC is 12, unless you want to do something outlandish and then it will go up. Or if it's obvious and very simple, the DC could go down. Yeah. So I say the the baseline is 12. But when you want to do things like walk across a clothesline to get to the next, it's going to be more than a DC 12 acrobatics yeah. check, right? So. Um, what about giving advantage and disadvantage? Only on crits and failures. If the person before you rolls a natural 20 or a 1, that will affect how well you do your thing. I I agree that that's a really cool way of doing it. But at the same time, I also count crits as two successes and failures as two failures. Like, uh, and botches as two failures. My problem with that is that when you do, when you've got a small group of like three people around the table and you've got like five successes to three failures, a single one can demolish a party. So it's a little yeah. bit, yeah, <laughs> it's a little bit less forgiving. So I tend to, to stick with the disadvantage because again, I'm promoting teamwork. Yeah. Okay. Right. So however well the outdoorsman does on a survival check, that will directly impact the confidence and how calm and how present the priest is when it comes time to do a religion check on the next turn. So, yeah. so if they do really well on that, then the, the priest isn't spending any time worrying about what the outdoorsman is doing and he can focus. Cool. As opposed to the outdoorsman getting lost 
frustrating the priest so badly that he now has disadvantage on his. So that's how I justify it. Cool. So next in this kind of level of difficulty for skill challenges, um, we have the one where you can't use the same skill twice. But if you use a skill, no one else at the table can use the same skill twice. Um, this is something I would tend to, this wouldn't be like, I would average out more often than not. I would be using the easier ones. If I want to add just that little bit more tension, a little bit more drama, I would do this as well. Um, this is if the party has activated a skill challenge encounter that probably will result in something drastic or dire happening to the party or to whatever the goal is or to an NPC. Like there's, there's stakes on the line. I'm throwing a medium uh, skill challenge on them. If it's just them reaching a finish line, then it's an easy skill challenge. Yeah. Running away from the three goblins is one thing. Yeah. Right. If this is something else when you, when the entire mountain is coming down around you, mm-hmm. right. And you really want to hit that level of tension. But again, if you're going to do that, there are only so many skills available and so many skill proficiencies available. Even though you can roll anything, you're only going to be good or great at some things, and the criminal might snipe the stealth one that the outdoorsman wants to use. And they're all listening to each other and panicking, going, oh, oh but I had a plus seven, you only have a plus four. Oh, shit, okay. Um, And they're all working together on that yeah. now, and it, it does raise that tension, but I then have a smaller list of successes or failures. This is five to three or five to four. Yeah, okay, cool. Right, so... Yeah. So that it's a little bit more forgiving. You're not going to punish people when they all sit there and realize that all they've got left is, oh, we're down to the last two and we've got religion and nature and nobody is proficient in either. What do we do? <laughs> right? We're yeah. just rolling D20s and praying. Well, the thing I love to do is if, if you are, uh, if, if you want to make it even harder, you go with rolls that they can only be proficient with, right? Like as, as in you could only roll a skill that you are proficient with. This is, Another thing to add that little level of difficulty because we're playing in a game that, let's be completely honest, not a lot of people have a lot of skill proficiencies anymore. Unless you're playing like a half-elf knowledge cleric. Well, I mean, there there are bards and there are rogues. Specifically in D&D. Yes, but half proficiencies in my mind don't count. Expertise. Expertise does. Expertise does. But expertise isn't as weighty as it can be in this situation. You're just, you're just used to 3.5. I'm used to 3.5 where you have a million different skills and the skill challenges just ended up being a clusterfuck of who could read 37 skills, um, quicker than anyone else at the table with the limited, sorry, going to use a different word with the reduced skill table that we have. And then the reduced proficiencies on top of that. I find that if you tell your players, not only can you only roll one skill per skill challenge so only one use of stealth is permitted it could only be rolled by someone who's proficient oh see i don't have that qualifier on it if you're proficient in it then you can use it just because the criminal used it before the outdoorsman does not matter anymore because they're both proficient in it oh no this this if i'm really trying to ramp up the difficulty of the of the skill challenge that's the only time i'll do that otherwise i'm okay with it see i i like to rely on this proficiency when your guys are are really pushed to their with their back against the wall really um they've had all of their gear taken they're an anti-magic field and they've got to escape the prison somehow Mm -hmm. they're going to rely on their wits proficiency only but do what you can what are you good at you can't use it twice but what are you good at okay right and so that's when i would really lean into that level of you have nothing left 
There's no way for you to do this. No. When you look around the table and you know that you've got one more encounter left and it's six skeletons that are going to stand up and you've got a bunch of level two players and everybody is there going, we're out of spell slots, our sword broke, and and every each of us have two hit points left. And these skeletons are coming in with, with 12 plus hit points and, and like, it's too much. I will turn that into a proficiency only skill challenge. Oh, so you're using their skill challenge as kind of a... Uh a safety net almost in a way. Sometimes. Sometimes yeah. I'll do that because they'll still get this crazy rolling dice to to get through this encounter. And I will tell them, you cannot kill these skeletons. There's no way that you're gonna be able to stop them. How do you get by them? That's 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 really smart. I've I've never thought of using this skill challenge more as a safety net. I, I, I like it to be a centerpiece of an encounter. Like you're going into the encounter knowing it's going to be that, rather than um okay guys, you're just about done, but you're dragging yourself through it. And, and you got to do a skill challenge to get through. Yeah. Right? But I've, I've also done it in the past where, like, I've had a party chase down a dire bear when they're level one. Yeah. And, like, right? a should... dire bear will mess up a level one party. And that's my big problem with, with most role playing games is that everyone is so specialized and everyone is a expert at one single thing mm-hmm. that it's very difficult to get everybody on the same page together. And skill challenges allows you to do that, right? Yeah. Whether they need to come together to do an epic thing or they're all just utterly bedraggled and they need to get to the to the next thing. And the only way to, to survive is by banding together. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes I will use skill challenges for things like you're on a, you're on a raft and you have no paddles and there are rapids coming. You can hear them. That's going to take teamwork to do. Yes, someone can misty step away. Yes, one person is going to be able to swim. But the the warlock, right, is going to sit there in D&D and go, I, I don't have misty step. I I have Eldritch Blast, and that that's nothing. I have Eldritch Blast and a sword I can make out of nothing. So so help because I'm screwed. My my shadow knife and my everything that every like my vanilla ability that every warlock feels the necessity to take. Yeah, yeah, and so that's that is where everyone needs to start banding together. Yeah, and sometimes they're going to just get by your skill challenge by being creative enough to say. Well, wait a minute. Why don't I just polymorph into a bird and carry a rope over there and tie it off? Sure, the skill challenge is done. Yeah. And I will reward them for that. Good for you. Not only do you do that, but you find a handful of berries that will restore one hit point, right? Like you you went above and beyond. You thought outside the box. You passed this yeah. encounter without a skill challenge or you ended it early or you just did a fantastic job. So congratulations. Here's your reward. If you fail your skill challenge as well, then there should be a significant consequence. consequence yeah. But I don't really have it affect hit points. I try not to have it be a skill challenge or die. That's fair. Yeah. Because again, you're putting so much weight on what the dice are doing. You might as well just have them be rolling death saves. Skill challenges are one thing. Um, what if your party has come up with a master plan to overcome some sort of encounter. You know a skill challenge isn't going to quite work with this, but the party needs to lay out their plan. How do we handle this to kind of help encourage this idea of teamwork? Because what we want to do is we want to walk away from the table knowing that this party knows they're a team and are building together as a team. If you haven't, if you haven't realized it yet listening in, this episode's about the team and there is no I in team. 
So how do you handle that? Do you do it mechanically? Do you... So what you're talking about, I guess, is when they all sit down and say, hey, there's a patrol of six guards coming by. We're going to cast this first, and then this person's going to cast that, and then this person's going to shoot, which will trigger this, and then we're going to... And they come up with this intricate plan of... Yeah, like, yeah. They're, they're playing Rat Trap um, from, like, that board game from the 90s, and and you... Mousetrap? Is it not Rat Trap? It's not Rat Trap. Oh, okay. No, it's Mousetrap. Oh, Rat Trap was it the name of uh, uh, Beast Machine. Anyways... Um, they're, they're playing this big convoluted, uh, that's a transformer joke yeah. or reference rather. Yeah. Um, they're, they're planning this big convoluted, uh, series of action. And I always find that this is something like we come down, we sit at the table, we do our, here's what we did last week. And then the players go, okay, so DM, here's our plan moving forward before I've even had the space to say another word. Right. So this is something that is usually happening right at the beginning of a session for me. Yeah. They tend to come in with some great big scheme of some sort. You are the worst as a player for that day. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, you will tell me at the end of one session what you're going to do. And then you all scheme in a private chat somewhere and then come back and completely derail all the prep that I had done. Not to throw my other players under the table who I do know they listen to this podcast. Um, often the scheming in another chat doesn't quite happen. It's just the scheming in my brain happens. Or the scheming in the chat happens and then you second guess it 10 minutes before the session starts. And then do something completely different the rest of my party hates me for. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yes, this does happen <laughs> quite quite a bit. Oh, my God. Sorry. And how, so sorry. <laughs> um, honestly, I, I want them to go through with it. If this is stuff that they can set up ahead of time and they don't need to cast a spell with the, like if the duration is long enough, it's going to last 10 minutes or even a full minute. Mm-hmm. They're going to have time to cast this before initiative is rolled. Allow them to. I recently saw a thing online, which was a, um, a hilarious story of a... I'm going to get the details wrong, but here it is. There was a, a group that was going to defend a city against a siege. They got up ahead of time. They knew they had a ton of time to prep. And they um, wanted to set up all the defenses on top of the battlements. They, they're standing on the city walls. There are turrets. Yep. There are archers. They've lined it all up. The DM is really into it. And one of the players turns to them and says, can I get a stripper pole? And he goes, fine, man. Sure. You do you. And so he sits there and he gets a stripper pole. And as everybody starts to like, like march toward the, the, um, city, like the siege force starts coming in. Yeah. Um, he starts doing an erotic dance. Uh, he ended up making a, uh, performance check and, uh, and everybody else sat there and like all the invading forces stopped and watched him. Like, what the hell is this? And then when he finally saw the leader of the opposing army step forward and say, okay, why are we stopped? Let's attack. He then teleported behind the leader and shanked him in the neck with a sneak attack. That is a brilliant plan that the DM was not expecting at all. And the argument was, does he have to roll initiative? And my answer to that is no. He had all of this time to set it up and he teleported. And that would have been the inciting incident where then people would have to realize what's happening and then roll initiative. And I would let this guy get the rest of his turn off first. Oh, yeah. Right? So why not do that? I'll reward your players for coming up with these plans. Let them do what they want to do. You as a dungeon master scheme all week every week to fuck over these little murder hobos. And so allow the murder hobos to be creative once in a while and reward them for doing it. Yeah. So when they do come up with these plans from a mechanical standpoint, I will try to stay out of initiative for as long as humanly possible until the enemies would draw weapons or there is a, a everyone in, in the party has had the opportunity to have an attack. Even if they don't take it, they've had the opportunity. 
Yeah. Once the first attack goes, everyone else has the opportunity. If they don't take it because someone is casting an illusion and they're using the concentration on that, they just say, nope, keep me out of combat. That's fine. We pass them. Now we roll initiative. Cool. Right? And so the surprise condition is in effect for a lot of this, but we're not we're not in initiative yet. I got to say, just as a quick aside, there is nothing I hate more than DMing sieges. <laughs> I find them arduous and painful. And we'll do an episode on this in later. We we will. It, and and I will completely admit it's a weak point of mine, man. Like how do you how do you manage five murder hobos against an army of thousands, right? Doesn't matter if they're level 20 and can wish them all dead. You like, give them mega zords. No, or, I'm kidding. Or no. or like massive like like it's 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 a large scale skill challenge and I know that after like putting in the work and the thought, but it's so hard to run it as a DM. So, I mean, we've got some tips and stuff that we'll bring up in a later episode for sure. But sieges are one of my strong sieges, points and I have I, a lot of fun with them. I so hate them. hate them so much. So if you don't want to roll the initiative uh, for them as they come in, um, what happens if it's not necessarily a huge battle thing, but it's more along the lines of like telegraphing or even coaching at the table? When it comes to this teamwork, often coaching is something that is done, is something um, that is uh, frowned upon, but telegraphing on your turn as in character can help. So how how, how do you handle a, like... Yeah, what's an example? Um, if the criminal has walked through a puzzle floor in an ancient temple somewhere and they're directing the warrior where to step next. That's kind of the thing that I'm talking about. And it's like these quick little on-the-fly uh, statements that your player is going to throw out in order to try to be a good team and help each other out. How do you as a DM handle that kind of stuff? Let them. Let, yeah. th- let them do that. That is 100% how they should be working together. You have a criminal or a sneak or whatever it is in your party to do this. That's why they chose this kind of character. Mm-hmm. So allow them to feel the strength of that. The same way that your priest wants to heal people and talk to the gods. If you've got a priest character, any sort of, of divine caster in your party, allow them to have a god. Unless they say, I'm not interested in that. And then move past it. Yeah. Right? So... You let them, and I will give advantage or some sort of mechanical boost, or I will cut the DC in half, depending on uh, what the situation is. If it is simply don't step on the red tiles, you don't have to coach them. They figured the puzzle out. Yeah. Everybody move past this, right? There's no mechanical role there, right? The only thing I would say, and, and I did kind of hint at it earlier, is if this is in character around the table, great. If this is like out of character coaching... Especially along the lines of like the criminal telling the mage to use a certain spell. That's not okay with me. I I have a bit of issues with that. It depends if the criminal has seen the mage cast this kind of spell in the past. Because at that point, they're splitting hairs. Honestly, Dan, if I know that you can lift something that's heavier than what I can lift. And then we run into a really heavy thing. I'm like, Dan, can you please lift that so that I can get by? Right? Like, that's that makes perfect sense. Why wouldn't? What we have but that's this, in character. That's right, what I'm trying to say. Right, right. But we have this knowledge that we assume that the that the characters don't have. Like, you don't know whether or not the, the mage can cast that spell today. Right? Did they have it prepared or not? But wouldn't you know after traveling for six months that they've got to prepare their spells daily? They study a certain amount and then they can get them off. And would you not turn to them and say, hey, do you have anything that can help us with this? Remember six months ago when you did this? Can you do it again? Mm-hmm. 
that's not that's not out of character coaching to me. And so the idea of metagaming gets really fuzzy and there's a lot of gray area here. And I like to reward the players for thinking about what opportunities and skills other people have. For example, when someone across the table says, hey, did you add your sneak attack damage? Well, the player may have forgotten to do it, but by God, the criminal didn't. <laughs> so if someone else says, hey, remember to do this, that's reminding the player, not the character. Yeah. I'm not going to penalize the character's actions as a result of that, right? And so there is a certain amount of leeway that you as a dungeon master need to give so that you're not adversarial and you can be adversarial by doing nothing. Yep. And so a lot of the times I will help and I will say, remember, you've got dark vision, so you can see this. This is a lot easier to do when your characters are lower level. Um, once they start getting this mountain of abilities at later levels, I know, um, when I was playing Lockie, I had a lot of issues remembering Indomitable, and we've talked about this across many podcasts. Across many podcasts. Um, there were times I, I was sitting next to, uh, one of our players who, who was playing a necromancer. Uh, she would reach over and like point at the big letters on my, uh, character sheet that said Indomitable as a way to remind me if I had failed to save and got all mopey. So like, that kind of stuff, like I agree with you, I'm okay with. It's it's the telling other players how their classes work. In early levels, when you sit when you sit back and someone who's played uh, an outdoorsman before and someone else is playing it for the first time and the person that's done it before looks at them and says, Oh, remember that you should be casting this and make sure that you step over there and do that. Just no coaching. That's not even a teamwork thing. That's a respect to the other players around the table. Yeah. Let them figure it out. Well, that helps build that atmosphere of teamwork, right? Like if, if, if you are avoiding directly telling, like playing another player's character, if you're avoiding doing that, then you're giving everyone the space to make their own mistakes, to make their own decisions about the characters, which means they're going to be more comfortable to step out of their comfort zone later. Um, let me, during let me tell you, so the thing that I always think of is, well, I had two players at the table and one person was trying to tell the other one what they should do. There was a barbarian telling a fighter what they what they should do at the table. And the fighter stopped everything, put their dice down and turned, pushed away from the table and turned to the barbarian and said, I'm sorry, am I having fun wrong? Yeah. And that is exactly the kind of thing you want to avoid at a table, right? That is That is burned inside my head. That is exactly the kind of thing you want to avoid because it is... It is immediately going to separate the party. Yeah. This is no longer teamwork. It is coaching. And coaching means that one person knows more than the other. It's one thing to guide. It's one thing to help. It's another thing to coach. Yeah. So as a dungeon master, be aware of who is bowling over others for in the name of experience or, yeah. or so that we make sure that this is going to work properly. Yeah. It's something I know I've had to work on to rein in because I was pretty bad at it when I first joined your, your group. Um, but. We really harp on the concept of adversarial DMs and being and not being an adversarial DM. Um, if you are a, you know, lifelong player here, you could be an adversarial player as well. Oh, and if you have put in more than five years of playing, check your shit. Yeah. Because you have things that you do that you take for granted that other people are putting up with because you've done it for so long that just because you're not a new player doesn't mean you cannot check in with yourself and the other players and think about, am I bowling over other people? If you find that you often get bored at a table, you are probably doing something to A, telegraph that boredom or B, mitigate that boredom. And it's usually at the expense of other players. Yeah. So in the name of teamwork, please, everybody check in with yourself every so often and make sure that you are working with and not at or for. 
Okay, so we're going to keep moving on with this idea of teamwork and building the team together. And we're going to talk about the one action in the game that really reinforces teamwork. And that is the help action. So the help action is as uh, follows. You can lend your aid to another creature in the completion of a task. When you take the help action, the creature you aid gains advantage on the next ability check it makes to perform the task you were helping with, provided that it makes the check before the start of your next turn. So basically for one round before your turn starts again. The first thing that they do will get that check. Exactly. Alternatively, you can also aid a friendly creature in attacking another creature within five feet of you. Note, you can't just stand behind your friend to attack the thing that's in front of them. You have to be adjacent to the target. You have to be adjacent to the target as well. You could faint, distract, or in some other way, you could help your target, help their your allies' attack be a little bit more effective. And if your allies attack the target before the, your next turn, that attack gets advantage. The first one. The first one, right? Um, this is basically spending your action to give advantage on either a skill check or the first attack. That's what the help action does. Um, in previous editions, it's given a numerical bonus of a plus two or a minus two, depending on what it is. I really like the advantage system, so I lean heavily toward it. I think it's the thing that D&D 5e has... Um, it is that it is that hidden gold that they have managed to mine. It, they like they hit the mother load of tabletop RPG mechanics with the advantage system. One of the interesting things about this this help action is that a lot of people use flanking rules. Yep. And the moment that you use flanking rules, it removes the help action from the table because you're already within five feet of of a, a target. Mm-hmm. Which between that and the uh, rogue specifically sneak attack, right? Between those two things, I find that adding the flanking rules just, just kind of makes other things less special and removes an entire one tenth of the appropriate actions that you can take out of the game completely. Yeah. And so people don't use it because they allow flanking rules. And I would, I would say, what do you lose if you take away flanking rules? You lose barbarians getting advantage, but don't they get all sorts of bonuses and perks anyway? You lose monks getting advantage, but I'm really not concerned about that. (laughs) Right? Like, your warrior archetypes, your outdoorsman archetypes, uh, and your criminal archetypes will get advantage in other ways, and can get advantage in, in this way specifically, even if you remove the flanking rules. So, me moving forward, I have run with flanking rules. I will never do it again. Hmm. Because it has it I, has changed the the flat math uh, of fifth edition. I, I I don't know if I see it that way because like I I like the flanking rules. Um, my my argument against the flanking rules has always been if I am standing across from uh my ally on on the battle map on that little eight eight square square. Um, if I'm standing across from them, I'm distracting this enemy no more or no less than if I was standing at three o'clock or at six o'clock or, or at nine o'clock. There's, there's, if I am engaged in combat with somebody, doesn't matter if I'm across from them or next to them in some other way, I'm going to have the same amount of distraction, right? I don't like the flanking rule because you have to stand across from it. I like the, I like the help action rule because it kind of opens up that availability to be able to stand anywhere and gain the bonus. A lot but, of people use the flanking rule as just being, if you are adjacent. Yep. Then automatically, advantages given to any other ally. And I just think that that, that, that changes the math. It cripples the enemies. Yep. 
Um, and this is where you start to get dungeon masters that say, hey, look, I've got a uh, level 16 party that are destroying CR 23 creatures left, right, and center. How am I supposed to get them to level 20? And it's because yep. they're hitting every single turn. And that's one of the reasons. And on the happening. inverse of that, you also have the DMs who abuse this by uh, making um, the action economy work against the players even more. If, if, if your horde of goblins are using the help action, it's going to go a lot better for the party than if your horde of goblins are using the flank yeah, the flanking mechanic. The flanking mechanic. The other thing, too, is it makes things like wolves who get pack tactics, like, that's their big thing. It makes it useless. Yeah. So, honestly, when it comes to the help action, I much prefer it. Yeah, me too. And if you communicate with your players, because a lot of players don't even realize that that is an option. Communicate with them, and that may open up a side of the game when they sit there and say, I really have nothing good to do this turn. I don't want to run away because I don't want to incur an attack of opportunity or waste my action on a on a disengage, mm-hmm. right? And I know that this guy's close to death anyway. I'm going to help the warrior. Okay, moving on from the help action, we have more um, more of a loose idea to build this uh, team uh, mechanic together, and they're team checks, Adam. So how do, how do team checks work, and how do we use them? So a team check is when everybody's working together for one common thing, and they're all going to roll the exact same check. For example, the walls are closing in, and they figure that they can jam some stuff into the floor, and they can start to uh, wedge things and and put in um, braces across. And so they're all going to use athletics checks to hold things still. And there's no other check that could possibly be helpful here. They all want to use athletics, and this wall is pushing. But it's way heavier. It's got a giant mechanical aspect to it. And the warrior is not going to be able to hold it off by himself, even if he's given advantage. If he rolls a natural 20 run, that's not an auto success mm-hmm. on an ability check. So how does he do it? Everybody, Everybody, please, please, please take note of that. A natural 20 and a natural 1 on a skill check are not auto successes and auto failures. True. Or on on anything, really, besides attacks and death saves. Mm-hmm. So what I, what I end up doing here is I look at the number of players around the table and I say, okay, I need to have an appropriate difficulty level that they combined all have to reach. Everybody roll an athletics check together. We're going to add that up and see if you can do this. Cool. Um, I, I really love this mechanic, um, especially for making your way through a dungeon like holding open a stone door so that your party could go through so it doesn't slam. Closed. A lot of people will think or, of of the uh, athletics specifically, but I, I like to think about things like deception when we all have to lie to the guard together. Yeah. Right? And you've got that one guy in the back who's just like, I'm sorry, I don't know what's happening. Right? And and you, you've got your mage is just the worst liar in the world. Well, no, you have you have a party trying to stealth. And there's the full plate male tower shield wielding um, warrior, warrior yeah. making his way through who somehow has symbols in his armor as well. And they're just clashing together as he steps like this guy's a walking beacon of attention. So you set a high DC for the entire party to meet for that team check. I also like to do this just as uh, an aside on an individual basis for in-depth lore research within a campaign. Yeah. So uh, if your uh, mage is trying to figure out some ancient secret, I will be like, all right, you have to hit a 150 on Arcana checks. And you get, with every eight hours of research, one roll on your D20. 
Yeah, and add, uh, eventually you and will get And then add that over through time. Right. Right. Um, and if other people are helping you, then they will add their score as well because you're working through the books faster. Yeah. Right? And so the idea of these team checks, the way that I tend to do it is if it is a one-off, like the walls are closing in, we have to be stealthy. We're trying to lie to this guard. This is not a over time cumulative thing. Mm-hmm. If it is an immediate factor, yeah. I take the number of players around the table and I times it by 20 minus one player. So if there's five people around the table, that is a hundred. Minus one player, so minus 20, Yeah. right? So it's 80. They should be able to do that. That means everybody's got a roll of 15. By the time you include bardic inspiration and halfling luck and and advantage given to people and stuff, they should be able to do that. But there's still a high chance of failure, mm-hmm. right? If you've got three people around the table, they've got to beat a 40, right? So it's, it's the number of people minus one times a d20. Yep. And that should give, it should make it difficult enough that they're going to sweat it, but they'll honestly, especially after about the middle of tier two, they're going to start passing those on a regular. There's still a real chance that they will fail that. Yeah. Well, 5 E's done a great job of kind of balancing the skills as well, because man, I've, I've seen people with 35 plus 35 and it's, it's reliable talents, I think is the one thing that steps against this. And you and I have harped on reliable talents in many different podcast episodes as well. But I mean, hey, you get it. This is a great time to be able to rely on that. Yep. And uh, and there are some things that you... Like when it is a longer thing as well, uh, a longer cumulative yeah. check that you're going to do. A deep research or, or an uncovering of a mystery or something. You're working on a puzzle box or something, right? Yeah. And, and they're going to roll it and see when does this kick in. You're probably assigning how much time in a, in a rest they've got to put into it, like a minimum amount of time and so on and so forth. At this point, I'm going to start saying, you know what? Someone else is going to help you with it, so you're going to get advantage, or they will also get to roll. Or if it's an NPC, you get advantage. Mm-hmm. If it's another player, they get to roll. Yep. At this point, I'm I'm running on the fly, but I know that I want multiple roles all working together. And that's something that we should really be thinking about instead of the mage being the only person that can do research or the priest being the only person that knows anything about religion. Seems ridiculous. The amount of times that I've been having arguments, I know more about movies than any one of my friends. And the number of times that I've had an argument with someone and lost an actor's name and someone else says, oh, yeah, they were also in this in this movie. It was a cop movie from 1998. Um, Luke Wilson was in it. I'm like, uh, uh, Blue Streak. And it was star- Martin Lawrence. Martin Lawrence. Yes, that is the one. It was Martin Lawrence. That's what I'm looking for. Somebody else brought that up. Yeah. Right. No one has thought about Blue Streak in, in God, uh, 20 years. But it just, that's <laughs> I was the like, one I went to first. There like, is a movie with Luke Wilson and and Martin Lawrence? Yep. It's called Blue Streak. <laughs> so anyway, useless fact. But that but useless that, movie by the sounds of it. That's not a movie I want to go see. It, 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 it was pretty good. Was it really? Well, it's a buddy cop movie. Okay, fine. Um, but it was really good for that one weekend that I saw it. <laughs> and I haven't thought about it again in 22 years. So um, one of the things that I find is really common in real life is when one person is trying to pull up a piece of information and someone else says, is it this? What about this? And they may not know a damn thing, but they can jog your memory. Yeah. So allow people to help especially with the quote-unquote knowledge checks, which don't exist anymore in 5th edition, but they are, for lack of a better term, your... Um, they don't exist, but they do exist. Yeah, for, for lack of a better term, they're the knowledge checks, and they are arcana, history, nature, and religion. Those are the four that we have in 5th edition. Yikes. There's no dungeoneering. There's no engineering. There's no local. There's no nope, planes. There's that's no it. nobility. That's it. Huh. That's why... Do I know this? 
pisses me off every time. So I'm like, I don't fuck history. Just just a history. <laughs> now, do you ever do the inverse of that and let them use team saves? Yes, but very, very, very infrequently. For example, the ceiling is caving in. It's the same thing as the walls closing in, but the ceiling is caving in. This is not a slow mechanical. Try to get your wedges in. This is catch Boulders it. are dropping. Yeah, catch it with your body so you don't get crushed. Everyone roll athletics and see if you can hold it up. There are a handful of times that... and Sorry, not athletics. That's, that's a strength, strength save. Strength save, yeah. Yeah, but, but there are certain times when, yes, absolutely, if everyone is huddled together for warmth in the Arctic, group... Con saves, yeah. Right? Very rarely. I cannot even think of an example of uh, of when I would use one of the mental stats or even dexterity. Oh, the entire floor drops from under your party. I would yeah, but, that. E, but everybody rolls their own to see or, if they... Or the mountain is slide... Like, there's a mudslide that your party's caught on top of or something like yeah, that. Yeah, but that each one of them will have a different outcome. Oh, no. I, I It would be like the... Uh, the end result would be like the warrior holding onto the criminal's hand, holding onto the priest's hand, holding onto the mage's hand, holding onto the. Oh, okay, but right. with, but with that, I'm rolling. Okay, the warrior rolls first. Does he hold on? Yes. Okay, everyone else will still get a turn to roll. It's always right. fun to play spider mon- uh, monkeys in a barrel with your players. I, I like doing that kind of stuff, but it usually comes down to strength and occasionally con if they're working together yeah. somehow. The uh, the danger with them, I find, is it takes one person to fail for everything to be fucked up. That's why often. I use it very, very, yeah. very rarely. Yeah. So, and that's, that's, I would agree and echo that sentiment because nothing will derail a campaign faster than half your party dying on something that was supposed to be an easy little team save mechanic. Yeah. All right, man. Like we, we've we've had a uh, great talk about the different ways you as a DM can encourage teamwork around the table. Um, other ways that players around the table can encourage teamwork with each other. Is there anything else we want to add to this? I mean, I really like to build on the idea that this is a cooperative game. Everyone at the table, DM included, is on the same team with the mission in mind of telling up bitchin' story. Yeah, everyone, uh, you call it a cooperative game, I call it a collaborative story. Yeah. Right, like, but the message is the same here. We're all on the same team. Mm-hmm. And there are different ways that you can do that. Like, as a dungeon master, different ways that you can you can promote that concept. One of the big ways that I, I really harp at is when you hand out loot to people. I don't hand out loot to people. I say, as a group, you find blank. Unless someone goes off by themselves and, yeah. and investigates. But Or if one person is sitting there looting a body, I don't send them a private text message saying, you find these things. I make sure that everybody hears me. Because unless he says, and I don't want anyone else to know, then it's public knowledge. right? And everybody should work together. There's also saves on a lot of the who knows what knowledge questions mm-hmm. at the table yeah right so when, when one person goes and talks to someone else i say will before I even tell them the answer will you be sharing this information with everyone else and that and i ask him at the table in front of everyone and if he says yes then then i tell him everything in front of everyone if he says no okay let's step outside the room for a minute yeah and you as a dungeon master should really be thinking about making it so that when this kind of thing happens how many times has a player god like i'm mad about it already how many times has a player had to sit there and endure another player using a sleight of hand to steal their shit while they're asleep oh drives me up the wall while you're sitting at a table and you're watching someone else do this if a player wants to do that 
ask the dungeon master, can I go outside and talk to you for a minute? And then the two of you should walk away and you should talk together and then come back in. And then the next time that person reaches for the thing, the dungeon master should say, it's missing. That's intrigue. That's interesting. It's different. It's adversarial playing. And I don't promote that. But if someone is determined to do it, or if you're playing in an evil campaign. I I, I actually have a a, uh, recommendation. If someone really wants to use the sleight of hand ability and for some reason or other, it's it's like the center central aspect of their character, encourage them on planting rather than taking. You're not pickpocketing, you're planting. Um, This has worked wonders in uh, a very recent session that I played um, where my friend who was playing a priest-like character uh, planted some potions on my warrior that I could use later in this moment of injury and did it while we were like talking to the big bad evil guy for that session. Just so I knew I had those things on me and it, it gave that character who wanted to use their sleight of hand ability, the ability to use it in a team building atmosphere rather than a way to cause division between players. I've always been a big, big, big proponent that party politics at a table is the overarching um, umbrella thing that is kind of unmutable, unshakable. What I mean by that is if it requires meta knowledge to make it so that your character doesn't do something stupid with the, oh, it's just what my character would do kind of statement or action, then guess what? You're playing as a team. Make sure you're playing as a team. I don't want any fucky party politics going on. Look, you use meta knowledge all of the time when you build your character and level them appropriately. You look at the available sorcerer spell list or ranger spell list. This is not by archetype, right? Now we're talking about specifically which thing am I going to use? Whether it is the Battlemaster superiority dice or it is the um, fighting style that some martial classes get or it's spells or meta... uh, uh, metamagics or whatever it is, you are selecting and choosing. You are sitting there even flipping through an adventure guide uh, or adventure gear list to say, what adventuring gear do I want? Instead of thinking for yourself outside the box, this is meta knowledge. You do it all the time for yourself. Do it for other people too. Mm-hmm. So when you say, I would have more fun if I got to steal everyone's shit, but no one else will have fun if I do this. It is time to be meta and say, my character needs a reason to not do this. Or my character needs a reason to do this. And when you think about it like that, you will create one. And if you don't know what it would be, turn to your background. Nine times out of ten, there's an answer in your background. And I don't just mean, I'm a sailor. I'm good on boats. I mean, read the background section of the player's handbook. There will be something in there that inspires you to become a team player. Everything in there, even the hermit and the urchin have reasons to be team players. Yeah. And you have joined a collaborative storytelling cooperative game. So work as a team and find ways to do it. And I, as a dungeon master, and you've seen this, Dan, I reward combos. For example, one spellcaster drops darkness and the other then drops fireball. Yes, please. Yeah. I will absolutely reward you guys with inspiration dice or advantage on the next thing or everybody gets disadvantage on avoiding the fireball because I can't see it coming. I'm going to give you guys boons for working together and Dungeon Masters come up with whatever it takes to help your players as early as possible in the campaign. Even if your guys are level 18 and they've been playing together for two and a half years, do it now. Encourage teamwork. 
Because that will have them not only bond together, but they will have a more fulfilling and rewarding experience because now they will be invested when something happens to the other characters. And that's what we want. Yeah. Because there is no main character in the storyline. Okay. Now that we've come together as a cohesive, powerful team, let's sit around the table, celebrate together, and hand out some inspiration dice. This will help us build together this interesting, awesome bitchin' story that we could share with our friends and family for years. Tune in next week when we go back to our party as they start to scout this sunken city. Thanks for listening to this episode of the It's a Mimic Campaign Builder. Check us out on Instagram, Facebook, r slash It's a Mimic on Reddit, and more. And contact us at info at It's a Mimic dot com because we would love to hear your thoughts on how you would use this episode in your own homebrew campaigns. I'm Adam. And I'm Dan. And we'll be back with more prep work next week. This episode makes the dream work. Never again. Okay. Um, our levels are really low. Now they're too high. Oh, no, they're all right. No, they're fine. Yeah, I'm gonna stay at about this level yeah, most of the time. Me too. Now, so yeah, we're both fairly dour today, but we'll <laughs> yep, try to okay. be happy. Yep. Okay. Um, blah. sphincter, sphincter, sphincter. Red leather, yellow leather. Red leather, yellow leather. Is that a thing? Yeah, yeah, that's, okay. yeah, that's a thing. What was the other one? Splurting sphincter, splurting sphincter. That's not a thing. Oh, I got news for you. <laughs> is that actually a thing? It is now. Oh, God. Five seconds. For our fallen comrades. Welcome back to the Campaign Builder. I'm Dan. And I'm Adam. And we're showing you how to build a camp. Fuck, we got to do that from the beginning. We're both <laughs> laughing through it. Also, you're yelling. You're like, oh, wow, I'm going to be down here. And look at you. You're redlining. Well, I always fucking redline. Fine. We'll drop it a bit. Okay. And you'll just have to speak up. No, we'll, we'll both just have to actually. No one has ever told me that before. Keep, all right, you go. Welcome to the Campaign Builder. I'm Dan. And I'm Adam. And we're turds. It's really small. And we're turds. We're turds. If you haven't realized it yet listening in, this episode's about the team. And there is no I in team. There is a me. And there's also the I with the, you know, in the ass, in the a-hole. There's, if you look at the... I'm, excuse me, what? You're in an a-hole? <laughs> so, okay. No, I'm not going to go into that joke. Goddamn, Dan. <laughs> you have capital, capitalized letters for team. There's an I, lowercase I, and the A, the void space of the A. And like, it's there. And You're a void space, bud. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. Okay, bye.